Guys of a Certain Age is brought to you by no one. Absolutely no one. Except these dudes walking down memory lane. Now let's head to the studio to see what they misremember next. Robbie Koblenz with Jay Reed and Art Shirley. And guys, you know, I was in Las Vegas last week and caught up with a good friend of mine, Steve Griffiths, who's about our age, that certain age, from Australia. He's a television producer, and he has some of the same geeky uh, interests that we do. And so uh, I want you guys to lean back, listen to this great conversation with me and Steve. Oh, it sounds good. All right, let's do it. Editor's note, some of the audio quality is not up to our typical standards because it was recorded in Las Vegas, and what happens in Vegas obviously stays in Vegas when it comes to audio quality. Maybe next time you shouldn't do it in the middle of the casino. <sighs> yeah, you busted me. Hey guys, it's Robbie, guys of a certain age. Special edition coming from the city that no knows no bounds, Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm sitting here with Steve Griffiths. Steve, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Robbie. So we are here, conclusion of NAB, National Association of Broadcasters, you, me, and 100,000 of our closest friends. You flew halfway around the world, and we have survived the week. Lots of, uh, lots of geeks here in, uh, in uh, Las Vegas this week for NAB. Do you, do you, think, there's a higher, you think there's a higher percentage of geeks slash nerds in the broadcast industry than other industries? Yeah, I don't think so. I think there's a lot of cool people too. Yeah, uh, but but it's cool to be a geek, you know. It is cool to be a geek, but uh, yeah, I think yeah, being a geek is not the same as it used to be. But but it checks all the boxes. You've got technology. You're in a darkened room with surrounded by computers. If you're an editor, you know you're you're kind of flying solo. It checks all those geek boxes, don't you think? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. How many of us got into uh, got into what we do technology-wise because of Star Wars? I mean, that seems to be the defining moment. Absolutely, uh, Star Wars for me was the very, very reason I wanted to get into this business. I didn't get to work for Industrial Light and Magic, but that had been my dream that got me to where I am today. Did you ever apply for a job at ILM? No, it was too hard to to move from Australia and come and work in the United States, and there was nothing beyond the American film industry that was doing things like that. So I chose a different path, which was more into television. So as, as uh, avid listeners and even new listeners might figure out, uh, I'm a TV producer and uh, Steve produces television in Australia. And you've done some pretty cool things in Australia. I mean, you, you know, Apple was a client of yours. You've shot, uh, you've shot and produced and edited a lot of things. What's the coolest thing, geek-wise, you've done? I got to do a lot of concerts with some amazing tours like David Bowie and the police when they broke up the very last concert in Melbourne, uh, Springsteen, Shirley Bassey, Dire Straits. Wow. Uh, I just did, uh, that's a long, long time ago, mind you, but that was some very cool times in the mid 80s when I was basically touring with every big band that ever came to Australia, which was pretty, pretty cool. That's crazy. Shooting camera, what were you doing? We had the world's biggest video projector. Wow. A device called an Idafor, which nobody's never heard of anymore. But we toured this thing with all the bands that came to the country and we provided the, the camera coverage. And I was actually the operator of this device and it was called an Idafor. 
wow, wow, that had to be. And it's almost like you got paid to do that. That's pretty oh, cool. Of course, yes. I mean, I would have done it for free. Yeah. You know, crazy, crazy. Um, all right, well, let's. We talked a little bit about Star Wars. You and I were talking Star Wars earlier. First theatrical run, how many times did you see Star Wars? I saw it at the cinemas at least seven times. So you're just a touch older than I am. That was my first, Star Wars was my first sci-fi memory. What was your first sci-fi memory? The first one that had an impact, I think, was Forbidden Planet. Wow, okay. That was a 1950s classic yeah. science fiction film. It's still still pretty good today. That, that was the one that introduced Robbie the Robot, which That's was right. just amazing. And there was one other that was really impacted me, which I think was from the 60s. It was a film called The Andromeda Strain. Yes. Now, that, that was the film that made me go, this can really, I don't know, deliver a story that you just can't get anywhere else and just yeah, really blew me away. And I believe Crichton, Michael Crichton wrote. He did. The Andromeda he Strain. Did. Yeah. He did. Um, well, side note, so you and I talked about uh, the, the cartoon experience in Australia versus the States. So in the States... Cartoons came on Saturday morning, usually 6, 6.37 a.m., and stretched till 11 or 12. And that was the time when you got your your superhero fix and all that. But that's not the way it was growing up in Australia. No, you talked about TV shows and cartoons that I've never even heard of. We just did not get what you got here in America. To me, Saturday mornings as a kid was watching the Thunderbirds. Sure and Warner Brothers cartoons. That was sort of the, that was my television experience on a weekend. We didn't do Saturday mornings quite like it happened over here. So how, how much would you get from American cartoons over? I mean, would, uh, I mean, if we're running episodes of Super Friends. Never heard of it. You've never heard of Super Friends? Never saw it. Wow. I don't think it was even on. Wow, that's crazy. We had a law, we had a law in, the, in, the, in our country at the time that a lot of programming for children had to be locally produced. So therefore there was quotas that the commercial networks had to meet. So they did take American programming and British programming, but there also had to be a certain amount of Australian programming as well. So unfortunately a lot of it got cut. So Australian television is a lot like the British model where you've got state-sponsored TV. Well, and not from a political standpoint, but state subsidized like the BBC. Exactly. We have the ABC, which is the our version of the BBC. So what's the relationship, uh, I guess, programming-wise between the BBC and the ABC? Well, for decades, ABC had first crack at anything that the BBC produced. So basically, ABC was the, ho- was the home for anything that came from Britain. One of those being Doctor Who, which we talked about. So Doctor Who was, and still is, like the ABC's owned program in Australia. Sure, sure. So you would get like seven, you would get uh, faulty towers, are you being served, all this stuff, which in America um, would end up being syndicated through Lionheart Television uh, and would end up on PBS stations. So public broadcasting stations in America are kind of a loose confederation of stations. They're all independently owned and operated, usually by some sort of governmental agency or education agency on a state-by-state basis. And uh, they put together their programming uh, from, from as many sources as they can. A lot of times you would pull the flagship 
PBS things like Frontline or Nova, uh, which are produced by member stations in Boston or, or, or wherever. Um, but you had holes to fill that you had to, to grab programming. And the, the, the BBC half hour non-commercial format was very conducive to the PBS 26 minute format. And so that's why anything BBC ended up on public television. That's where Doctor Who came into play in the in the uh, early '80s here in the States. But you, so how? What would? How, what was the uh, the lag time between a premiere? Let's say Doctor Who, because we'll talk Doctor Who for a few minutes. Um, let's say a, a a Tom Baker new episode premiered on Saturday in in England, how long would it be before you would get that on the ABC? To be honest, I don't know because they, they stripped the program in Australia, which is Monday to Thursday. So they would do, it became an institution in the country at 6 p.m. every evening, Monday to Thursday, Doctor Who aired. And they would run the entire season. And then once that finished, they'd loop back to Pertwee or Troughton episodes until they caught up again with the next series that came from so that's exactly how they did it in the, in the States. They would strip it out at 6 p.m. Uh, and it would be Monday through Friday. And so, but we only got, Tom Baker came. Uh, that was the first introduction in the States. And so we had the entire seven year run of Baker. And then, um, then they, they, if I recall correctly, we got Baker 80, 79, 80, somewhere in there, maybe 81. And so they stripped it out and then they would, then our PBS station, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, used to be called Mississippi Educational Television. They would, uh, they would show the Peter Davison episodes uh, relatively new on Saturday nights. So uh, we would get the, the, uh, the reruns of the previous shows, the previous doctors stripped out. And then that changed a little bit as it got to Colin Baker and the decline of, and they ended up just showing it uh, new episodes on Saturday nights. And then, then you know, the, it got canceled, put on hiatus, that sort of thing. So. I met Tom Baker just the once. Oh, how was he? He was, it was a, a book signing. Yeah. And it was at our local, very, very large uh, shopping mall. And like a, a big, one of those big department stores. And it was the top floor in the biggest area garden that they had. And the queue was massive. And I was a nervous 11 year old. I was there by myself. I'd walk down to the supermarket, uh, sorry, the, the uh, department store. And there was this huge queue that wrapped around until there was Tom Baker sitting down on this sort of podium area. And so I'm really nervous. I'm thinking, I don't want to ask him anything that's really dumb. You know, I've got to have a really, really good question, you know, like, because I don't want to go, what's your favorite color? Because I remember him an an answering that question on television that he was asked really stupid questions by his, by his fans. So I didn't want to ask a stupid question. So the line moves around and I eventually get there and I've got my own copy of The Deadly Assassin, which was one of his stories yeah. for him to sign. And when I got there, I said, hello, and he smiled at me with a big, genuine smile. And he said, how are you? And I said, great, thank you. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> I, I could not say another word. He signed my book and I went on my happy Oh, man. I, um, I've been watching the, uh, the, the Blu-ray of uh, Tom Baker's first season. Um, 
and which is a fabulous Blu-ray bump. I mean, they, they took the SD stuff, they, they cleaned up some of the special effects, remastered it, it looks really good. But the best thing about the Blu-ray of, of season one of Tom Baker's run is all this behind the scenes stuff. And they've got so many uh, interviews with Tom Baker through the years. And uh, yeah, the thing that constantly came out from that was um, Tom Baker said, you know, I wasn't playing the doctor, I was playing me. And his personality, what you saw on screen uh, was Tom Baker. And, and, and he continued that through the years. And, uh, and it just, I mean, he's never left that role. And, and for so many people uh, our age, um, Tom Baker's their doctor. And that, that's, that's one of the things I was telling the guys back in the studio. Uh, you know, you, you, usually the first doctor you see in Doctor Who, that's your doctor. And that's, that's how you measure everybody else. And for me, it was Tom Baker. My first was Tra Patrick Troughton. Wow, you go back that far. But you guys got him. Oh, well, let me ask you that. Well, no, tell me. Give me, give me I time. I think I saw it when it aired, but it's, I'm getting going back so far that it's a, my memory is a bit cloudy and I might be reinterpreting the, the reality of it. But it, I remember seeing the final Troughton episode where he changed into Pertwee. I, I vividly remember seeing that episode because it, how old was I? Seven, yeah. and, and it, emo it affected me emotionally because he was being forced. Vaguely, remember, he was being forced to go to Earth, and they wouldn't let him choose his own face or something. It was weird, but sure. but it, and the, all his companions were sent back to their own time zones with no knowledge of their time with the Doctor, which was done in later episodes yeah. with other characters, which was very very emotional, you know, and it, it affected me as a as a as a very young young child. So, so did you guys, because a lot of the Troughton episodes were lost because the, the BBC would, would retape over. Um, and I've only seen a handful of Troughton pieces. Um, I've seen a few more of Pertwee. Um, so were you getting them, well, it would be after the run because if you were seven, that would have been 69, 70, something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, 72, 71? Yeah, so so Pertwee before Pertwee, yeah. So Pertwee would have been the com would be the current doctor at that point. So you were probably getting some reruns. Interesting. Um, but who's your favorite doctor? I can't answer that question anymore. There's been there's been a couple of good ones since in the new seasons and uh, I I like Patrick Troughton, I love John Pertwee, and I love Tom Baker. Capaldi, I liked, just loved him as a character. Um, Capaldi was the closest to a classic doctor. He was the closest to, yeah, the Pertwee yeah. doctor. Yeah. I, I felt that he was a reincarnation of Pertwee. Absolutely. I, I, I thought he had a little, uh, he, to me, he was a combination of an amalgam of Pertwee and Baker. Um, and he, it would be, to me, Capaldi would have been if the show had never stopped and it can, you know, had continued that evolution and had slowly rebooted, you would end up, you know, Capaldi would fall right in line. Um, so, but that, uh, I, I liked him a lot. I'm rewatching some of the Matt Tennant's, I mean, Matt Tennant, wow, Matt, the David Tennant episodes. Um, and there's some really good things in there. 
Um, I, I watched it on the original run on Sci-Fi in America and uh, haven't really watched a whole lot. Gone back and revisited it. Um, but there's some, uh, there's some really fun stuff and there's some great scripts. And I'm just- I keep telling you, all the doctors can be good. Yeah. It's the scripts that make the show. It is, it absolutely is. So, um, well, all right, so we talked about cartoons and the differences in Saturdays. Talk about movie releases as they bleed from, from America to, to Australia. Um, you know, Star Wars premiered late May of, uh, of 77. Did you guys get it that summer? Do you remember when you got Star Wars? We got it our summer. So I think there was, again, my memory's a little bit hazy, but I didn't see Star Wars until, that's right, it was a, a birthday present. My mum took me to see it. <laughs> and I was born in October, so that was in October. Okay. So yeah, we I, at the time there was always a, a, a delay between releases there to what we got over in Australia, but nowadays we often get them a few hours before you do because we are a day ahead. So when they release, and, and you know, then there's the uh, there's the current philosophy of releasing internationally prior to a U.S. domestic release to boost the numbers to create a sense of momentum. Uh, but the licensing is now so complicated. You get these annoying little pockets of programs that we just don't get to see. Like it took me, well, I didn't get to see The Expanse for a year and a half after it came out because I don't know what the rights issue was, but it couldn't be shown in Australia for whatever reason until Netflix somehow managed to get the rights and show it to us. And that was literally a year and a half after it aired here on Sci-Fi, I think it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, started on Sci-Fi. And Sci-Fi had- And we have Sci-Fi. Yeah, but is it is it? But it's not the same sci-fi. Well, it's got the same logo, but it's not the same sci-fi. Yeah, like for instance, BBC America is owned by, if I if I'm recalling correctly, BBC America is owned by Discovery Net Network, uh, with a licensing agreement to the BBC. So I don't. The BBC may have a minority stake in it, but they if that's the only thing they have in it. So. Um, which is kind of kind of funny. So what will be interesting to see is once you get through season three of The Expanse and we get to the pure Amazon season four, um, if it's if you're going to see it on Prime. Yeah, we will. Yeah. We have Prime, so we already know that we will get it as soon as it arrives here. So The, uh, the, the Expanse is a really, I, I think it's a great show. I've read all the, well, I have, I've got a book of it on my nightstand right now, the this book seven, and uh, I think it's incredibly well-written science fiction, uh, realistic science fiction. Um, but it was interesting to see that the deal that that Sci-Fi uh, wrote, they just pulled the U.S. domestic distribution, and they had no streaming outlets at all. So once it rolled off a two-week, three-week, whatever window after it aired, and they could play it on the Sci-Fi app, then it went to Amazon, which had weird well it is and bezos is is uh amazon ceo jeff bezos is bezos or however you pronounce his name is um such a huge expanse fan he's a super fan i didn't see the press conference live but i yeah. heard about it very soon after well, it happened when they announced it and apparently he was pretty ticked that they weren't able to secure the complete rights package for amazon prime from the get-go of course this went into production, I guess, four years ago before Amazon Prime had really started to push out 
their full production slate. So um, it was great to see it picked up. I can't wait to see what they do. I love the way they've adapted it. I think it's a great adaptation. Um, the characters are not necessarily who I would envision reading it, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but I think I like the TV characters better than what I maybe had envisioned, you know, early on. And, um, but it's, it's realistic science fiction. So, which is pretty, I know, I love that. pretty unbelievable. So, uh, well, what's, give me some of your, uh, your geekdoms now. I mean, you, you now, so Steve has, has edited a show on the ABC called Whovians. <laughs> so, so tell me about Whovians as, as we continue with the Doctor Who theme. Well, the best example is, uh, what's the show that comes after The Walking Dead? The Talking Dead? Yeah, The Talking Dead. So Whovians is the Doctor Who version of The Talking Dead for The Walking Dead. Sure. So in Australia, we uh, this year, uh, Doctor Who unfortunately aired on Monday nights because the BBC decided to move. They used to always run Doctor Who on Saturday nights. So we would get it in Australia at 9am on Sunday morning, which was the same time it was airing in uh, the UK. And then we broadcast it in prime time, 8.30pm on a Sunday night. Perfect time. But then the BBC decided, well, we want that slot. We're going to try 8.30pm on a Sunday. So we couldn't now get the episode until Monday. And we record the Whovians on uh, what two days before the episode airs. So we actually get to see it couple of days early and we have a live studio audience we have a panel discussion the audience and the panel they watch the episode and then they discuss the show and then we edit that the same day and it goes to air um, uh, the half hour directly after Doctor Who on ABC2 <laughs> wow. well well so um, talk about the secrecy around that I don't want to get you in trouble but you know you would get you would get the episodes a little bit before in order to prep for it. How, how, what was the level of secrecy there of getting a Doctor Who episode prior to? Look, we were allowed to show the, our audience in the studio the episode, uh, let's see, we were, uh, see, they were only seeing it after it aired in the UK. Gotcha. So if you look at different time zones, sure. 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, was the airtime of the night before in the UK. Yes. So we were doing a studio record four hours later at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. So as far as the BBC was concerned, that was okay because it had already aired. I understand. Uh, now, of course, we had to get the episode in advance because we were editing segments for our show. So there's you know, non-disclosure agreements between the two networks and we've got to be super security conscious that it never goes outside a certain you know, closed fence so that it doesn't go out into the wild, sure. that sort of thing. But that's normal for television. You know, it's, it, 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 it's really crazy how the heightened security for intellectual property because of piracy. So I, I, I'm going to be, as we record this, uh, this is the uh, Thursday before season eight of Game of Thrones uh, premieres on HBO. I'm going to be really interested to see um, the viewership numbers for those. Uh, for, for that, it's going to be gigantic. And I never, to me, um, you know, Doctor Who's an institution. It's been around for a long, long time. Um, when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I was a huge Doctor Who fan, but I didn't let anybody know because, number one, no one knew what it was. Uh, it took too long to explain it, and then they thought you were, you know, weird because it's 
a low budget British science fiction show about this guy who runs around in a telephone booth. Um, but I would have never have imagined that Doctor Who become the worldwide phenomenon it has. And I would have never imagined that Game of Thrones would have become this huge, popular uh, television show that has permeated everything here in the U.S. And um, I, re I, I read the first book 10 years ago. I was incredibly shocked that the main character was killed at the end of the first book. And I thought to myself, wow, this is different. Then when I saw HBO had commissioned a pilot for it, I said, no, there's no way this is going to work. There is absolutely no way. This has too big of a scope. It's too dense. It's too complex. And it's arguably the most watched television show uh, on TV today, or it will be, I should say, once it premieres in, in a few days. Those numbers are going to be gigantic, you know. And the budgets for these TV shows, these episodes, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the penultimate episode of the last three to four seasons have featured gigantic battle scenes, gigantic set pieces that are reminiscent of Lawrence of Arabia, where you've got some CGI coming in, but you've got a ton of practical effects. And it's just, it's crazy. Do you, can you believe we live in an era where that's possible, where you can have shows of that grandeur it's just um you know think back 20 years we've always had you know, in the last 20 years we had great shows but i think we're at the point now where we game of thrones is set what am i looking for you can have a program which is expensive to make but can recoup its costs and can tell a story that there's no other way you can tell you can't do it in a movie you need hours and hours and hours to tell these grand stories and i think it's wonderful that they can be told and <laughs> I get to watch them. Oh, absolutely. I find myself gravitating towards um, serialized television if, in my watching habits. I, I, I do not care for typical American network television that is a one-off episode that resets at the end, analogous to Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation. Let me jump in. You remember back in, you know, in the previous century and most of the beginning of this century, most network television was episodic. You know, episode one has no connection to episode two apart from being the same characters. And what was the show that really changed that in the 90s? Uh, Do you well, recall? Did you watch it? And it was a science fiction show. A grand arc of five years. Oh, Lost? No, Babylon 5. Babylon 5. I never got into Babylon 5. But you're right, you're exactly right. Because that you had to, and one of the reasons I never got into it is because uh, I prejudged the effects in the first season or so. And uh, that weren't quite up to par. And everybody kept telling me, but the story, the, the payoff's great, the storytelling's great. So I need to, I need to revisit Babylon 5. Um, so you know how they did the, the effects on Babylon 5? Yes. Well, initially on, on Omega um, 1000s and using Lightwave. Using Lightwave on the video toaster. Video toaster, yes. Yes, that was, uh, that was, I was absorbing that information when I was a younger man and just saying, oh, I want one of those. Well, it, uh, I, I, had a, I had a 2000 with a toaster and I played around with Lightwave, but Babylon 5 was the show 
that proved that desktop video in that regard could be network television. Well, it wasn't network television, it was syndicated, but it was nationally syndicated. Um, but to me, the, the, that style of storytelling really came into its own with Battlestar Galactica, Galactica reboot um, in 04. And you really, you had to get into that at the beginning um, to understand, went off the rails a little bit towards the end, sure. but, but sure. you know. Uh, and I still haven't watched Lost to this day. I need to get into Lost and, and do that whole thing. I made myself watch it. I still don't quite understand what happened, but I did actually see the yeah. final episode. Yeah. So, um, all right, how long have we been going on this, Steve? I just said, hey, look, we're going to do this for 10 minutes. And we're at 27 minutes. Wow, full Guys of a Certain Age episode with Steve Griffiths. So, uh, anything else you want to add? Any uh, any other geekdom things, sci-fi things? What's... Uh, what are you into now? We, we, we talk, Dr. Steve is one of my Doctor Who buddies, and uh, we, we talk Doctor Who every time we get together. But what are some of your other uh, current? I still love, you know, Marvel movies. I'm still a kid at heart. I love Pixar movies. Yeah. You know, I'm, I yeah. still haven't seen um, Incredibles 2. I'm hanging out to see The Incredibles 2. I just, I don't know. I, kid, those kids' films just. I, I have a joy in watching those sort of movies. The, uh, you know, Pixar to me has been the closest thing to uh, traditional Disney. Um, and uh, yeah, Incredibles 2 was great. I'm looking forward to the new Toy Story, uh, which, you know, apparently is incredibly emotional. And uh, so that's, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I just, I need to buy tickets for, uh, for Avengers Endgame. And uh, for uh, Bonnie and the boys and I to go see it the, the night it premieres. Well, I'm just getting my wife caught up with the uh, Marvel Universe. So she's missed a few along the way. So while I'm over here in, in the US, she's at home. I'm going, okay, next one's Doctor Strange. Then you've got to watch Black Panther. And after that, uh, Spider-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's right. And then you'll be, you'll be right. Because she came to me to see Infinity War. And she'd seen a few of the movies. But she hadn't seen Doctor Strange and she hadn't seen Guardians of the Galaxy. And I realized halfway through the movie, she has no idea what's going on. That's Who right. are these people? Well, you know, we, we talk about serialized in television. It's unbelievable what Marvel has done. In movies, yeah. In movies. Yeah. And it had built this incredible universe, uh, made billions of dollars. They, each movie is great. I mean, each has got its different level of, 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 uh, of funness. But... Even uh, Iron Man 2 is still a fun ride, even though it didn't make nearly as much money. It was well received. Sorry, Iron Man 2 was just a disaster. It was, it was not a, a disaster. Funny, a quick, very funny story. Jane, my wife and I had seen Iron Man and loved it, absolutely loved it. And we were going to this gym and we made all these new friends and Iron Man 2 came out. And so we said to our new gym friends, oh, you've got to see, come with us. We'll go and see Iron Man 2. And they all just looked, watched this film and at the end they went, Oh yeah, that was um, thanks, uh, thanks, Steve and Jane. That was uh, yeah, that was uh, interesting. Oh man, wow! All right, well, Steve, thank you for letting me drag you into the podcast. Art and and, uh, and Jay would love to meet you. Yeah, we'll yeah. tell Jay that I have I saw Star Wars. I think it was Jay. Yeah. I saw Star Wars one more time with him. I think. Wow. In the theaters. I think, no, was, I think it was Art. I think it was Art who did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's crazy. I saw it three times. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Art and Jay, for not minding me kind of going off script. And thank you guys for listening to this episode.